The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I am chair of the club's business and leadership forum and your host for today for our in-person and online hybrid program, which is entitled Journey Beyond Fear, to ignite your passion and build your success. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers, Allison Levine and John Hagel. Welcome. I thought we could start with Allison, since she's the furthest away, <laughs> and um, invite her to tell us a couple of minutes about your background and how it is that you came to be interested in this topic. You certainly are a, an expert in the field. Oh, uh, well. And then we'll go to John Hagel after that and um, proceed with um, a fun conversation with the three of us. Uh, well, I'll kick it off then. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everybody for joining us this evening. Um, my background is in leading teams in extreme environments. So I was the team captain for the first American women's Everest expedition. That was in 2002. And then I went on to climb the highest peak on all seven continents and skied to both the North and the South Pole. It's something called the Adventure Grand Slam. Um, and I think now there's a couple dozen people in the world who've completed the Grand Slam. But when I completed it back in 2010, there were only a couple of us. And I've always been fascinated by leadership and team dynamics in these remote extreme environments. And I, I served on the part-time faculty at West Point for four years in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. And I currently am on faculty of the Thayer Leadership Group at West Point, which is an executive education program that shares West Point leadership best practices with corporate executives, because there's a lot of parallels between uh, military environments and the extreme environments that I'm in. And now, of course, everyday life, right? We all feel like we're in a remote extreme environment ever since COVID hit. So the, the lessons that I typically focus on are not just for the military or polar landscapes or big mountains. They're really for everybody now. Thank you. Yeah. I think that maybe uh, John might tell us a little bit about how you came to be here in this moment. That's <laughs> uh, a long story. Uh many years, but uh, I've actually moved to Silicon Valley 41 years ago, mm. and it was to uh, start a computer company, even though I had never used a computer in my life, much less studied computer technology. So there was a certain amount of either bravery or craziness in that, uh, in that journey. But uh, 
I've been the founder of two tech startups in Silicon Valley. I spent 16 years with McKinsey and Company as a partner, opened up their, helped open up their Silicon Valley office, started their e-commerce practice, uh, spent uh, 13 years as a partner at Deloitte and started a research center for them called the Center for the Edge, a global research center. And it was focused on identifying emerging opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda but are not and doing the research to persuade them to put it on the agenda. So, so the journey has really been looking at the accelerating pace of change on a global scale and both the opportunities that are emerging, but also the challenges that are emerging along the way. And on the side, I've written eight books. Uh, my most recent one just came out called The Journey Beyond Fear. So that's uh, what I'm here to talk about today. <laughs> I am... Um... I have a feeling that Journey Beyond Fear is a departure for you. Uh, it seemed like uh, a lot of business books yeah. in the past, really excellent, good strategy for executives. But this is different. Thank you for writing it. It seems really timely to me. Um, while it speaks to business leaders, it seems like individual, any individual managing fear or movement builders might find it extremely useful in their, um, in their approach. You study things like the big wave, extreme big waves. <laughs> I've heard them say fear is not being a hundred percent present in the moment. So I don't know if that resonates with you or you have a different approach to thinking about fear. Oh, well, that's the whole focus of the new book. It's, uh, it is a very different book from the other ones that I've written because it is meant to speak to everyone, not just business people, not just business leaders. Uh, and the catalyst for it was um, this, I started writing it about three years ago. And uh, the catalyst was I traveled around the world as part of my work, and I was... Uh, struck by the degree to which the dominant emotion that I was encountering around the world was fear at the highest levels of organizations, at the lowest levels out in the community, fear was everywhere. And I think there are reasons for fear. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the th elements in my research, and I should mention too, my book is partly a personal memoir. I talk about my own journey beyond fear and the lessons I learned along the way. But also then it was um, based on research that I've been doing for decades. And part of that research was around what I call the big shift, the long-term forces that are reshaping the global economy and society. And I think one element in the big shift is mounting performance pressure on all of us as individuals and as institutions. And in that context, I think we have a natural human reaction to mounting performance pressure of fear. We become afraid. The world's getting scary. And um, I think that uh, while it's understandable, it's a very limiting emotion. Basically, we shrink our time horizons. We become more risk averse. We lose trust in others. There are a lot of reasons that fear is not the, the most effective emotion for dealing with this. Um, but I think that the interesting thing, too, is that 
the paradox of the big shift, the research that I've done, is on one side it's creating mounting performance pressure. At the same time, it's creating exponentially expanding opportunity. Hmm. We can create far more value with far less resource, far more quickly than we ever could have a few decades ago. So, but the challenge is, if we're driven by fear, we can't even see the opportunities that are out ahead of us, much less have the, the willingness to pursue them. So the motivation for writing the book was, how do we first of all acknowledge the fear that many of us are, more and more of us are experiencing, and at, cultivate emotions that will help us to move forward and have more, more impact that's meaningful to us. And so in that context, I talk about three pillars that I think can be very helpful in this journey beyond fear. And the first pillar is the notion of narrative. And the challenge here is I, I have a very different definition of narrative than most people do, because most of us, when we talk about narrative, we mean the same thing as stories, stories and narratives. It's the same thing. No, well, I... In my view, stories are different from narratives. Stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end to it, the end. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined. It's not about you. You can use your imagination, figure out what you would have done, but it's not about you. In contrast, for me, when I talk about narrative... It's about the future, and it's about some significant threat or opportunity that has not yet been achieved. The res- it's not resolved. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions can help determine how this narrative is going to resolve. And so I think it can be very powerful. And I talk about it at multiple levels. The first level and most important level is a personal narrative. I believe we all have a personal narrative. We all have a view of the future and we all have a call to action to others. The challenge is very few of us have articulated what is that view of the future? Is it primarily threat based or is it primarily opportunity based? Mm. And do we have a call to action to others? I think many of us in a world of fear, we can't call others to act to support us because we can't trust them. We need to do it all ourselves. So it's a threat-based view of the future, and we're just going to do it whatever way we can. And I think realizing that and then reflecting on it and evolving the narrative to challenge ourselves to say, what is there in the future that could be a really inspiring opportunity that we could focus on and pursue? And how could we get others to help us to address that opportunity? So I view narrative as a really significant catalyst in the journey beyond fear. And I won't go into detail, but I actually talk about narratives at multiple levels. I'm talking now about the personal narrative. I think there are corporate narratives. I think there are geographical narratives. I believe the success of Silicon Valley has been driven by a narrative. I can talk about that. Um, And then movement narratives. And I think all of those can play a significant role as a catalyst in the journey beyond fear. But start with the individual. Start with yourself and what's your view of the future and call to action to others. So that's the first pillar. Second pillar 
and we're not getting any of the images, but uh, the second pillar is this notion of passion. And here again, I will caution that everybody in my experience has a different definition of passion. If I survey the room, I think everyone would have a a different definition. Uh, I'm focused on a specific form of passion that comes from the research that I've done, which I call the passion of the explorer. And what I was doing in, in in, in the research was looking for environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. What could we learn from those environments? And what I learned was that across all those diverse environments, the one common element was all the participants had this very specific form of passion. And it starts with a notion of a long-term commitment to having an increasing impact in a specific domain that you're really committed to. I'm going to have more and more impact over time, and I'm excited about the opportunity to have more impact. And it's the notion of when I'm confronted with unexpected challenges... I get excited. This is an opportunity for me to have more impact. I've never seen this before. How could I figure this out? What, what could I do? And then the third element of the passion of the explorer is when you're confronted with those unexpected challenges, you've, you've come back to say, who else can I connect with who could help me come up with better answers faster? And so they're driven and excited about the opportunity to have more and more impact And I think this becomes the the, the second pillar. I describe it as the fuel that will give us the energy to move forward in spite of the fear. And a a key message in the book is I don't believe we're going to eliminate the fear. It's a question of acknowledging the fear and then finding emotions that will motivate us to move in spite of the fear. So I think that's a a key element. And then the final third pillar is what I call platforms, but again, I have a very different definition. Everybody talks about platforms today. This is a platform world. Um, In my view, most of the platforms we have today, virtually all of them, are either aggregation platforms that support short-term transactions or they are social platforms that just help us connect and have conversations with other people. Great. The missing platform, the platform that I think is an untapped opportunity, is what I call a learning platform. And here I emphasize that I'm not just talking about learning in the form of videos of courses or workshops. I mean, we do have those kinds of platforms. That's sharing existing knowledge. What's missing in a rapidly changing world is focusing on learning in the form of creating new knowledge that didn't exist before. Because our existing knowledge is becoming obsolete at an accelerating rate. If we don't create new knowledge faster and faster, we are in trouble. And so I think the opportunity, particularly as as people connect with their passion and get excited about pursuing uh, challenges and creating new knowledge, to create platforms where they can come together becomes really exciting. And I would say that... um, the, um, uh, uh, this notion of um, coming together, uh, again, I won't go into detail, but a key theme in the book is that in the journey beyond fear, we're going to be much more successful in that journey if we come together in small groups. 
I mean anywhere from three to 15 people at most, where you develop deep trust-based relationships with each other. And on the one side, you're supporting each other. On the other side, you're challenging each other to get more and more impact and learn faster and faster. But I view these platforms as they become available will become key accelerants that will help us to exponentially expand our impact as we develop the passion catalyzed by the narrative. So that's at a very high level some of the the uh, structure of the book. Wow. And being a, a passionate explorer in this way um, really is a core of your writing in this book. And and here we have one. Right. So we, we have like the opportunity <laughs> to, <A>. to, <laughs> to hear from uh, somebody who's really got the bona fides in the field. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about what that process has been for you, Allison. Are there childhood experiences that shaped your amer- yeah. amazing courage or strength of character? Uh, there were actually childhood experiences that led to where I am now. But uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I would watch these documentary films about them, I think because it felt like an escape from the oppressive summer heat in, in Phoenix. But I never actually thought I would go to those types of environments because I had some health challenges growing up. Long story short, I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. And I, I grew up in a very tough love family where the rules were no whining, no crying, no complaining. And so <laughs> I, I didn't really go to my parents with my health issues. The fact that a lot of the times I, I couldn't breathe a lot of the time. I felt like there was an elephant sitting on my chest at times as I was struggling to get air into my lungs. And I just was afraid to complain because I grew up in this you know, no whining, no complaining house. And uh, eventually I, the, the hole in my heart got bigger as I got older. When I was 17, I lost consciousness. And the friends that I was with had the good sense to take me to the emergency room <laughs> where I was diagnosed with this life-threatening heart condition. So I had my first heart surgery when I was 17. That one did not go so well, but I had another one when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be this guy, you know, Reinhold Messner, who's dragging 150 pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go to Antarctica and try doing it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers and these mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of reading about them or watching documentaries about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. Uh, I'm 55 now. I haven't stopped climbing. But I, the reason I was so drawn to John's book and his work is because all of these experiences that I've had, in whether it's dealing with North Pole, South Pole, Mount Everest, whatever, they all involve fear. They all involve fear. And I just had to learn to think about fear very differently. So I think if most people were to put fear in a basket of emotions and you had a a positive emotion basket and a negative emotion basket, most people would think that fear goes in the negative basket. 
But what I learned throughout my experiences, uh, and I write about this quite a bit. I have a book called On the Edge, where every chapter is a different chapter about an expedition. Some of them went well, some of them didn't, but they all involve fear. And I, I had to accept that fear is just a normal human emotion, right? And you can learn to use fear to your advantage. So I've learned to use fear to help you know, keeps me awake, alert on my toes, aware of everything going on around me. So fear I can use to my advantage. Fear is only, it's only dangerous when it paralyzes you, right? So I always tell people fear is okay. Complacency is what puts you at risk. And I would say that's true for the environments I'm in and for, you know, everyone's lives these days, right? You're in these environments that are constantly shifting and changing. You don't know what's coming at you down the trail anymore. You know, since COVID hit, we don't know what the hell this world is going to be like next year, next month, next week, you know, even tomorrow, right? We don't know what's coming down the trail, but you don't have to know what's coming down the trail, in order to just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And I'd, I'd love to just show you really quickly, I've got a couple of graphics to show you um, one of the areas on Mount Everest that really scared me. Every time I went through it, it scared me. Um, and I'm going to show it to you. It's the Kumbu Icefall. This is, this is uh, one of the most dangerous parts of the mountain. The Kumbu Icefall is made up of 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge moving ice chunks. And these ice chunks are the size of small buildings. And what happens is the sun comes up, everything starts to melt. These ice chunks start to shift around. So you're in constant danger of being crushed. And then to make things even scarier, there are these big, huge open crevasses everywhere. These are these holes in the glacier where you could fall hundreds of feet to your death. So between the big, huge moving ice chunks and the ladders and the open crevasses, it is an incredibly scary part of the mountain. And here's just a couple seconds of video so you can really get a feel for it. Here you go. So I think I think you probably get it, but uh, whoops. this ice fall is actually where I learned about fear, how to process fear, right? Fear is okay. Complacency is what will kill you. What you have to really keep in mind is that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can, you can be scared and brave at the same time. And I've just had to accept that fear is always going to be a part of these environments that I'm in. But as long as it doesn't paralyze me and as long as I process it the right way and use it to <clears> propel <throat> me forward rather than holding me back, I, I think fear can be good. Wow. <laughs> so this element of emotion is part of this first pillar that you're talking about. So in the narrative, there is this. Uh, experience of emotion. Uh, John, what would that tell you about um, using the book and this first pillar? Where does emotion come with narrative? Is it, or is it more in the feeling of passion? Like help us contextualize this fear aspect. Yeah, I think, the, the key challenge that we more and more are facing is the narratives that we are pursuing in our lives are based on a view of the future that's focused on threat. We're at risk of losing our jobs. Our kids are not going to have the kind of living that they need to have. If we're retiring, hey, the good news is we're going to live a lot longer than we expected. The bad news 
We didn't save for that. Well, how are we going to live? <laughs> Fear. Yeah, maybe the bad. Maybe the bad news is that we're going to live a lot longer. Than <laughs> <laughs> no, the fear is, uh, you know, driven by this view of the future, which the narrative, again, I think if you make it explicit, um, I tell the story in my book of this this woman who is a well, well-established doctor in the medical profession. And, you know, you would think she would have a view of opportunity in the in the future. But when she reflected on her narrative, it was really driven by fear. It was driven from her parents who had told her that she was going to be poor and on the streets unless she pursued a profession that gave her a lot of money. So she went for the profession that would give her a lot of money, but she wasn't excited about it. She was driven by fear and she wasn't driven by what really excites me, what really motivates me. And so I think that, again, just the process of, of, Stepping back and framing what that narrative is, and again, my key questions are, is it primarily a view of threat in the future or opportunity? And are you, do you have a call to action for help from others? Because again, I think one way of overcoming fear is recognizing that there are others who are joining you to, address, to achieve something that's pretty exciting. So, um, yeah. And I, I should say, too, I'm sorry, the, the other thing that I get a lot of pushback from people who say, you know, I don't have a, know a lot of people who are expressing fear. And my response to that is, and by the way, th- this is pre-COVID, so, uh, you know, obviously there's fear today. But pre-COVID, you know, the, I, my response is we live in cultures where expressing fear is a sign of weakness, So you don't even want to acknowledge to yourself that you're afraid, much less share it with others. No. And I think we express other emotions. And one of the emotions that we see a lot today is anger. But I think if you push underneath that anger, it's driven by fear. But anger is a good, strong emotion. That's something we can express. We need to get underneath and really understand that, no, fear is what's driving that anger. And what can we do about that fear? How can we cultivate better emotions? So anyway, that's, yeah. And how do you answer that to people? How do you cultivate better emotions? Uh, Do you have a feel for that, Allison? Well, part of it, I think, is in realizing that you're not alone. So part of the reason I think people keep their emotions to themselves is they feel like if they express fear, as John mentioned, it's kind of a sign of weakness. If they express doubt, if they express that anything isn't going perfectly, maybe they're the only one feeling like that. And maybe other people will think that, you know, they're not as strong, they're not as skilled, that they shouldn't be in that particular role. And it is, this really makes me think about an experience I had on Mount Elbrus, which is the highest peak in Europe. And it was a long day of climbing and I felt completely exhausted and every muscle in my body was screaming at me. And we stopped for a break and we had this incredible expedition leader. His name's Vern Tejas. He is one of the most experienced mountaineers out there, one of the most experienced mountain guides out there. He did the very first winter ascent of Denali. This guy is badass. (laughs) 
he was our expedition leader. And I remember that we stopped for a break and I was feeling terrible. And he said, how's everybody doing? How's everyone on the team doing? And everyone chimed in. Oh, great. Feeling good. Everyone's doing great. Everyone's doing great. And then he said, oh, okay, I guess I'm the only one struggling then. And this whole time when everyone was saying they were doing great and they were feeling great, it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Why am I struggling? Why am I intimidated by this big mountain? Why, am, why do my muscles and my bones hurt so much? Maybe I, should, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not good enough. And as soon as he said, guess I'm the only one that's really feeling it right now. Guess I'm the only one with a banging altitude headache. I was like, oh, no, me too. It made me feel like there was nothing wrong with me. And it made me feel like it was okay to be experiencing those challenges. And while we were mostly dealing with physical challenges, I think that this same kind of experience is applicable to people feeling fear because you don't want to be the only one to admit that you're feeling it when everyone else is like, yeah, this is no problem. Like COVID, I got it. <laughs> like not knowing what the future is going to hold. I got it. Yeah, no, my job's going away. That's I'm fine. You know, when... When other people express that they feel fear, I think it makes you feel more normal about it and that there's nothing wrong with you. And that's why I've never forgotten that experience with Vern Tejas because it, it helped us feel like there was nothing wrong with us. And this is one of the things, you know, I lecture about this at West Point and I did a virtual class a few months ago to the, the graduating seniors. And I had one of them talk about this. You know, I was explaining the same thing about what happened on that trip with Vernon. He said, you know, that, that really helped me. I think that's going to help me be a better leader because so often we feel as leaders, we got to be strong. We got to be tough. We cannot show any vulnerability. And sometimes when we're like that, it actually hurts our team more than it helps them. So that means then that being vulnerable is actually a strength. I believe that yeah. it is. I, I, one of the things I write about is the need for a, a fundamental transition in our leadership model, because I believe today, to Allison's point, the, the mark of a strong leader is somebody who has the answer to every question. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. And by the yeah. way, if they don't have an answer, maybe it's time to get rid of them and get a leader who does have all the answers. And I frankly believe that's the reason why there's an erosion of trust in most of our institutions. Because if you have leaders saying they have the answers to all the questions, there are two possibilities. One is they're clueless. They don't have any idea of how the world is changing. Or they're lying. In either case, why would you trust them? And I believe the mark of a strong leader in the future is the one who has the most powerful questions, who yeah. will say, this is a question I don't have an answer to. I need help. Will you help me? And so it's expressing that vulnerability and saying, we need to come together. This is an exciting question. If we could answer this, we could accomplish some amazing things. And, and so I by know... doing that, then... <laughs> You'll oh, sorry, just have to just wait your turn. <laughs> no, I just was going to kind of add on to that. Um, Go ahead, Allison. When, you know, I, I like it when a leader goes, you know what? This is going to be really freaking hard. And this looks a little bit scary, but you know what? We're, we're going to go through this together. Like we're going to get there together. And then that gives me confidence in that leader. And it, it makes me feel like there's nothing wrong with me because I think it's going to be hard and scary too. <laughs> I think it's okay for a leader to say, you know what? 
this is not going to be easy. It's going to be hell on all of us. But you know what? If we lock arms and work together, we're going to get through this. And so that's what gives me confidence in a leader, too. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt. And so what that does then is it creates confidence in the leader, but it also creates a sense that we can trust each other in the team. Yes. And that's the other piece that you're pointing to when you talk about the uh, platform is yeah. let's create platforms that are deeply um, relational. They're not transactional. Right. And that those platforms that can then uh, build our trust in each other. So then there is this room to be vulnerable and to discover new solutions to things. Yeah. And they're relational, again, in a different sense from, again, we have a lot of social platforms today where you have lots of conversations and you know, show off your pictures to other people uh, versus no relational in the sense of we are all excited about doing something that's never been done before. And we need to come together to do that. And we don't have all the answers. We need help from each other. And that builds the trust. But it also builds the excitement. There are others who are really wanting to go towards this amazing opportunity. Let's do it. Let's go for it. So. Yeah. And come up with new solutions to uh, situations that are really quite dire. Uh, right. And that and have so, never been encountered before. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm so interested in the uh, idea that you have about these learning platforms. Uh, I would say for the last 18 months, I've spent a lot of time on platforms like this the new Republic of the heart and Pachimama and presencing Institute. Like there's a number of different platforms like this. And, and that's one of the most core aspects is this team building that can come out of them. Yeah. Uh, it's quite surprising that here we can all be on zoom and still have those kinds of experiences together. Right. How uh, can you tell us a little bit about when you think of the future? What how what is the call to action that you have for us regarding some of those platform ideas? No, I think it's the notion of really, you know, to your point, there are some early stage initiatives mm -hmm. around this, but it's just the beginning. Mm -hmm. We're only in the earliest stages. And what can we do to come together on these platforms and evolve them in ways that they can scale and where we can have more and more impact? And I think that that's what's you know, really exciting is because, again, you get the harness, the network effects where the more and more people that come together, they're going to learn a lot faster. They're going to achieve much more impact. And, and so you accelerate the solutions, you accelerate the answers and, you know, and more opportunities emerge beyond that. So it's never ending in terms of the opportunity to scale. One of the questions that's come in from uh, our online audience is for John and it's from a global perspective. Do you find that some countries and some cultures are more open to others in terms of these kinds of issues? I This um, person writes personal growth, but we're really talking about something beyond that, aren't we? Yeah, I think uh, it varies. Uh, I, my generalization is, again, I'm struck that around the world, 
fear is becoming the dominant emotion. So it's not a particular country or particular culture. Um, but I do think there are exceptions. And, you know, I would actually, <clears throat> again, I'll come back to uh, Silicon Valley here. One of the reasons I was drawn to Silicon Valley 41 years ago was because there was an opportunity-based narrative. The narrative was, we are in the early stages of digital technology, we have an opportunity to change the world for the better. And it was all about opportunity, the amazing things that we could accomplish. But you need to come to Silicon Valley to do this. Will you come? The call to action to bring people together. And it's the reason why in Silicon Valley, so many people here were not even born in the U.S., much less Silicon Valley, <laughs> because they were drawn by this narrative. And I think that, to me, that's an example of the kind of op opportunity for geographies, cities, regions, countries, to frame an opportunity-based narrative that will inspire people and bring them and excite them to come together to achieve something amazing. Do you have a, a sense of uh, how the learnings that you have um, can be brought into the forward, into the future with respect to these questions? Like, how do you talk to people at West Point about the future? Uh, well, for me, I just think that we have to understand that we things are changing in such a rapid at such a rapid rate now that part of what's important going forward is learning that you have to adapt and you have to be able to pivot and you have to be able to take action based on what is going on at the time because while planning's really important so this is what I talk to people about is plan planning's important right you want to have a plan for the future Planning keeps you organized, keeps you motivated, keeps you on track. Planning's great. But what you have to remember now that things are shifting and changing so rapidly is that whatever plan you came up with last year, last month, last week, this morning, your plan is already outdated as soon as it's finished when you're in these environments that are constantly shifting and changing. So one of the things you know that I stress is that you have to be able to take action based on what is going on at the time. And you cannot be, you know, hell bent on sticking to that plan no matter what. And there are all these, you know, even pre-COVID, as far as, you know, the military goes, well, the enemy doesn't know your plan. You know, they're not going to help you stick to your plan. So you have to be able to just always be changing direction when need be and take action based on the situation rather than being based on a plan. And I think once people get used to the idea of, I think I have to give up my plan, I think it's okay to venture away from my plan. Once they become more comfortable with that, then I think that they will be able to make better decisions going forward and understanding that you might be going in one direction and that might not be the right direction. So you got to be okay backing up and changing direction. Sometimes progress isn't going to be linear. So that's another thing I tend to stress in my lectures is that progress does not always happen in one particular direction. Sometimes you are going to have to go backwards for a bit in order to eventually get to where you want to be. And so progress doesn't always look like progress and it doesn't always feel like progress. But for me, as long as you are moving, as long as you are learning, as long as you are growing, you are making progress. 
Yeah, I was just going to mention that, uh, again, I've done a lot of work in, in the business world, corporate world, and I've become a strong proponent of an approach to strategy that I call zoom out, zoom in. And it, it comes from companies that have been very successful in Silicon Valley, but it, it, the focus is on two time horizons. One is 10 to 20 years, and the, that's the zoom out. And the horizon there is what's the big opportunity given how the world is going to change 10 to 20 years from now. And then there's the zoom in, which is 6 to 12 months. And on that horizon, the question is, what are the two or three initiatives we can take today in the next six to 12 months that will have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement? And I think to Allison's point, it does away with the five-year plan. It's all about that zoom out, that big opportunity, and the short-term initiatives that we can take, and then learning. It's that learning mindset. We may have to you know, pivot, as, as Allison indicated, if that long-term opportunity doesn't prove out, but it, it focuses in terms of fear. My experience is the zoom out, the really big opportunity 10 to 20 years from now can help people to start overcome the fear because it shifts us from threat to opportunity. And then the zoom in, because we're taking action now and having impact and making progress, it overcomes the skepticism of the people who say, that's just a fantasy. That could never be done. No, we're doing it now. We're making forward movement. And so I think it's powerful in moving beyond fear and really motivating people and exciting people to, to achieve something significant. So then it's not about a limited story. It's about a narrative that's open-ended enough yeah. that really invites us to lean in with each other. Yeah. No, and I think it's, a, again, a key part of this is recognizing the opportunity that we see, the huge opportunity out in the future. We can't describe in great detail. We have enough detail so we have a sense of what it is and why it's so exciting. But then it's that learning mindset that says through action – we're going to get more and more insight into that long-term opportunity. We've got to act. We can't just sit here and meditate and think about it and, you know, do endless analysis. We have to act and learn from the action, and that's what, what's key. And so then in those platforms, you have the ability to work together as these small teams, whether they're online or in person, to then generate a new plan when the the old one just crashed. Yeah, I think a key part of this, the learning platform notion is feedback loops. So you agree on what are the metrics that we're going to use to determine the progress that we're making so we can get quick feedback on, you know, where are we on that on those metrics and then creating the time for these groups to step back and reflect because, Again, often there's, there's just the focus on let's just keep acting, let's just keep acting. No, we have to sit back and reflect on what did we achieve, where did we exceed our expectations and why, and where did we fall short and why, and how can we refine our actions so we can have even more impact over time. So I want to remind the audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio that we're listening to a conversation with John Hagel and Allison Levine. And we're on the topic of a journey beyond fear and invite our uh, audience here at the club and online that this is a great time to start to pose questions to our speakers. <laughs> they're, they're like, they're both saying, 
Bring them on. Bring it. And uh, we're having a little bit of a hard time seeing up here, but we think that there's a mic <laughs> that you can utilize. Uh, yes, I can see somebody that's at that mic. Um, please go ahead with your question. Okay, my question is that I agree there's a place for overcoming fear. But for me, the biggest benefit of fear is it keeps me from doing stupid things. And I'm wondering, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I had very little fear and did a lot of stupid stuff as a result. And so I'm kind of wondering about the role of fear and how do I know the difference between when I want to overcome a fear and when I want to use fear to stop me from doing something stupid? Oh, that's a great question. I think that it's, uh, it is a balancing act. Again, my view is that we're never going to eliminate fear and the fear to Allison's point, it, it has good elements to it. Uh, to your point, it avoids us going into doing crazy things. But on the other side, if we don't have a sense of what's really exciting and motivating us, the fear is just going to hold us back and we're just going to sit there afraid to act because any action could create all kinds of risk. And why would we want to do that? So it's it's, again, recognizing the fear and honoring it and, and realizing that it can help us avoid the, the bad things. But. Moving beyond the not reckoning, fear alone, uh, I don't believe fear alone is, you know, I, I say to to people, you know, we talk about the amygdala and we're all humans driven by fear. That's a, that's what drives us. And I recognize that. I say, but who who do you know who aspires to live in fear? We all aspire for hope and excitement, something that will really be meaningful and exciting to us. Find that and then recognize the fear will help keep us on the path. But anyway, sorry. I just want to add something to that really quickly, John. I think when um, we talk about fear and we talk about you know, choosing a direction and having to change direction and having to analyze where we're going, a really important aspect of all of this, and I think this goes right along with the journey beyond fear, is having a sense of failure tolerance. I think this is so important in relation to fear because a lack of failure tolerance really stifles progress and innovation and prevents people from taking risks. And you know, anyone that knows just a little something about the history of Mount Everest will know the names Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, right? First guys to ever summit Mount Everest. But guess what? There were dozens of climbers who tried and failed before those two made it to the summit. But those two, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, the famous guys, those guys had the benefit of all the data, all the research, all the information from those earlier climbers. And granted, they never got the recognition. They didn't become household names. But if those guys hadn't had the guts, you know, hadn't had the courage to get out there on the mountain and try it first, I bet Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay would never have made it. You just don't know for sure. I mean, my point is when you're going to try really hard things, and move past that fear of fail, fear, you know, past any kind of fear. You have to give yourselves and your teams the freedom to fail. I think that is really what helps you in the journey beyond fear. And so if we have leadership that tolerates that and we have learning platforms where we have the 
trust of each other, then maybe if you fall off the trapeze when you're six, you start to trust that you still survive after that process and you can bring that forward so that when we do fail, it won't be fatal failing because we'll have each other and have the trust of those platforms. Yeah, a couple of points, just again, more from a business context, but I'm struck. I've been the number of meetings I've been in and leadership meetings around risk analysis. And it's all about analyzing if we you know, take this action, what are the risks? If we take that action, what are the risks? If we take that action, what are the risks? There is never a discussion of what is the risk if we don't take action (laughs) and so fear is holding people back and Mm -hmm. saying, yeah, we can all see the fear, the risk of taking action. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my view is there's actually a much bigger risk of not taking action, you know, identify that and and see that. So it's, uh, I think we've got another question at the back of the room, please. Great. Hello. Hello, John. Hello, Allison. Hey, um, Hi, my name is Pascal. I wanted to uh, talk about uh, John's um, second pillar, which is the passion. Yes. And then, you know, based on that, I will be able to, um, so I was looking at, so we are talking about passion and passion for fear or passion of fear in the sense that we need to be able to embrace the fear like Alison mentioned, so that we can actually overcome it. Because when you have a passion for something, then you're excited to be able to say, okay, I have a passion for this, but I need to be able to be excited and go beyond that passion. You know, it's not just about passion. So you could have, you could, you could have passion to be a politician. Something gets in your way. But that passion is still there. But it could be the fear is actually pulling you back, you know, to go beyond that. So then my question becomes, how do we um, bridge the gap between passion and fear? You know, especially um, considering the times that we are now, you know, I mean, you can see today, this is a Commonwealth Club. A lot of people couldn't be here because of fear of the data variant. You know, they've taken their vaccination, um, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, you know, they, they, uh, they could be told to come in with their mask. But then there's that fear of, I don't know what's going to happen. So how do we bridge that gap, you know, in order to continuously to overcome this fear and get where we need to be able to get to. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, that's an important question. I think, the, again, based on the analysis and research I've done, is the passion creates the excitement that helps you to move in spite of the fear. And I, you know, one of the things I write about, I, st- I studied uh, as part of my research, uh, big wave surfing you mentioned earlier. Um, and you talk to big wave surfers, who are paddling out to ride the next big wave, they're afraid. They know not only that they could fall off the board, but actually surfers have been killed 
on those waves. They could die, but they're still paddling. They're still paddling because they're so excited about the opportunity. But again, I think to Allison's point, the fear plays a positive role in the sense of helping them to stay focused and really avoid whatever you know, risk that, that could cause them to die. But they're still going. And it's that excitement to say, I need to do this. I can't hold back. You know, and I, and, and, but again, acknowledging the fear, recognizing the fear, saying that's there and it's, there's a reason for it. People have died. <laughs> I should be afraid. Um, and when does that fear become excitement? Where is hope in all of that? No, well, I think that's, again, why I view narratives as the catalyst, because it really focuses us on saying what opportunity out in the future is really exciting, not just something that we think is neat or fun or whatever. No, really excites us. And I believe we all have within us the potential for this kind of passion. Most of us have been uh, taught that, you know, if you have a passion, just leave it at home. You know, when you go to work, just do your job as assigned. But, you know, I think we all need to be searching for that passion. And by the way, I, I'm, I'll say, too, you know, there's this new expression out called the great resignation with the COVID uh, situation, which is that more and more people have used this pandemic as a catalyst to step back and reflect and say, what is it that really excites me? And is meaningful to me. And oh my God, the work that I'm doing doesn't excite me, (laughs) doesn't motivate me. And so they're now switching jobs or in the process of searching for a new job because they've come to realize that having that excitement and having that sense of meaning is really important. So, yeah. I don't want to let this opportunity go by without asking you, Allison, about a film project that I think that you might be working on. Yes. Will you tell um, us a little bit about that? I would love to. Thank you for asking about that. So I'm working on a documentary film. The title is Sherpani. Sherpani, most people know the term Sherpa, right? It's an ethnic minority group in Nepal, and Sherpani are female Sherpas. And I'm working on this film about a woman who I felt like stared fear in the face and kept going. This woman, her name was Pasang Lamu Sherpa. She was the first female Sherpa and the first Nepali woman to summit Mount Everest. And what makes her story so incredible is that she grew up in extreme poverty. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. She couldn't even speak the national language in Nepal because Sherpas uh, speak a different dialect and she never had a chance to go to school. And she saw her father, her brothers, her uncles, her relatives, all the male relatives climbing Mount Everest. And she had this dream to climb it too. But the government of Nepal would not let female Sherpas climb. They would not let Sherpanis climb. They would only let the men climb. Hmm. And her point was, wow, you let all these women from all these foreign countries come here and climb this mountain that's in my backyard, yet I'm not allowed to climb it because I'm Sherpani. And so she fought the government of Nepal. She fought the government of her own country for equal rights for all women in Nepal. And she broke through that barrier, you know, and fought for gender equality. And 
Her first three attempts on Everest were not successful, thwarted by bad weather or climbing politics. But she finally summited on her fourth attempt in 1993, and she became the very first female Sherpa, the very first Sherpani to summit Mount Everest, and the first woman from Nepal to summit Mount Everest. But so news of her successful summit catapulted her to hero status throughout the country. They radioed down and told everyone she made it. The whole country was cheering for her. But sadly, she died on the way down. So she never got to tell her story. And I think it's such an important story for people to know about because it really proves that regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic background, you can change an entire country if you just have courage. That is the only thing that Pasang Lamu Sherpa had going for her. Everything else was working against her, right? Sherpas are also a religious minority. They're Buddhist in a Hindu country. And this woman just overcame all these barriers in her fight for gender equality. And she's Nepal's most famous contemporary hero. Everybody knows about Pasang Lamu Sherpa in Nepal. And I think it's time for people outside the country to know about her too. And by the way, the director who is related to Pasang Lamu Sherpa by marriage. Her name's Nancy Svensson. She is Mill Valley based. And uh, most of the film team is Bay Area based. And so we're planning to have the film finished by the end of October. And then we'll hopefully do the film festival circuit. But I hope everybody here watching today will have a chance to see this film because she's a really a powerful figure when you think about fear and courage. And she, you know, she did it. She, she has an incredible legacy, and I just want to make sure that everybody outside of Nepal knows about her as well. Please keep us uh, posted about your progress. We want to know how we can support you. Mm. Great. Thank you. Well, I've got another question coming in from uh, both. There's one in the back and another one here online. This one is from Manuel. And he says, John, what is your vision for the future of humanity, given the threat of climate change? (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question. Oh, man. That is going to John. Yeah. um, I'll just use that, first of all, to say one of my uh, concerns about most of the major movements we have today in the world are based on threat-based narratives. Hmm. The world's going to hell. We're all going to die. I've studied successful movements throughout history around the world. And the common element of all the successful movements is an opportunity-based narrative. It's something that really can inspire people to say, what could we accomplish if we all came together? What amazing things could we accomplish? And I think in the context of climate change, absolutely we need to acknowledge the 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 challenges and, and the, the trends that are occurring. But I think what we, what's missing is framing what would the world look like if we could overcome climate change? What kind of amazing world could we live in? Who's articulating that? I just, it's missing. And I think, again, I, I think it's a challenge for most of the major movements we see today is We've all adopted threat-based narratives. The enemy's coming to get us. We're all going to die. We need to mobilize now and resist. Well, I don't think that's going to drive change. I hear your point. Yeah. 
I think we're at the point now where we have time for maybe one more question. <laughs> um, and we'll have to pose that Later same on. question that you just answered to uh, Paul Hawken when he comes next month. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Please. Hi, I'm Kathleen McCowan. And I, I also have been in business at Silicon Valley for decades. Um, and what interests me is how you can change things systemically through the world. So when I was coming up, the, the, um, the, the phrase was fail early, fail often. So you failed, but you managed it. But when I pose this to say visiting bakers from Austria, I said, you know, if you have a CEO who failed at something, are you going to fund them? And they go, never. And then I'm like, you're not going to get Silicon Valley. <laughs> so how do you provide a more systemic approach where people accept that multiple failures, if you will, but with a successful pivot or limiting risk is something rational and that people will invest it? No, it's, it's an important question. And I think that, uh, you know, the... Um... The challenge for me is, you know, many people now are talking about how good failure is. Failure is only good if it's in the context of something really amazing that you're trying to achieve. If it's just failing for the sake of failing and just, you know, pivoting randomly, I don't think that's going to help much in terms of impact. It's much more, again, the zoom out, zoom in of okay, what's that really big opportunity that, that's worth taking risk on and failing on and then recognizing, yes, we are going to fail, but it's going to help us to learn so that we can accelerate our movement towards that longer-term opportunity. And it's that balance, I think, that really is critical and is missing from, I think, a lot of these discussions of failure is you don't want to just fail for the sake of failing. You want to do it because you're trying to achieve something really uh, Awesome, and it's going to help you if you learn from it and and evolve your actions so you can have even more impact over time. So, yeah. I'd love to give you each a moment of final comment. Do you have something you'd like to leave? Allison, would you like to leave the audience with a particular thought? Well, I'd like everyone to remember that it's National Dog Day. So that's important. (laughs) (laughs) It is National Dog Day. So give a little extra love to your dogs. Um, I had to mention that as a huge dog lover. But just to remind people that, you know, fear is a normal human emotion. And don't ever beat yourself up for feeling it. But do not let it paralyze you. Realize that you can work through fear. And when you're feeling isolated, the best thing to do is to reach out to other people so you can feel like you're going through whatever it is that's creating this anxiety and this fear that you're going through it together. Remember, you are never alone. And I also want to remind people that a few kind words of support to somebody who's having a tough time, to somebody who's very fearful, can completely change the outcome of a situation. So um, be there for one another, help one another, and and be aware when, when somebody's struggling. Thank you. John, last word? Last words. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I mentioned that my book was part, a part, in part a personal narrative. I began my life in enormous fear, and I talk about the reasons for that fear. And it wasn't until I was in my 50s 
that I finally was able to make the journey beyond fear. And it was a narrative focusing on the narrative that helped become the catalyst. But my hope is that, um, first of all, my lesson is you can make this journey at whatever age and at any age. You don't have to be a young person to, to make the journey. You can do it at any point in your life. But my hope is that as a result of the lessons I've learned and some of the research in the book, that we can make that journey at a much younger age and life will be a lot more full. Well, I think uh, it's wonderful that you've written this book. And Allison, thank you also. I, um, I thank both of you for your comments here today. We'll do a book signing for those of us that are here in the room. Sorry, we <laughs> won't be able to include you in, uh, in that part. But certainly we thank all of you who have come. Everyone that's online audience, our radio audience, thank you, thank you. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.